You're listening to The Sweeper, the pan-European football podcast that brings you all the news from the 55 UEFA nations and sometimes a little bit beyond. On this episode of The Sweeper, we talk about the son who knocked his father out of the Champions League, the Greenlandic team foregoing the championship for a reindeer hunt, and the raccoon that fell through the ceiling of the US press box. Hello and welcome to another fun-filled episode of the Sweeper podcast, where we talk through the headlines from some of the lesser-known corners of the football world. In this podcast, we've got plenty of stories from the European continent, as per usual, and we're going stateside too. But we're going to open up with a segment on the UEFA club competition qualifying rounds. And there is arguably no better place to start than by talking about KI Klaxvik. Paul, is this the best achievement by a pharaoh since the pyramids? <laughs> Uh, yes, <laughs> it is absolutely. That's a great intro. Um, it's amazing. It's an incredible run that they're on. And um, I think what's really in- interesting is seeing how they still get underestimated every single round. And I think what one thing that's definitely happens with Minnow Nations is people grow up or, or they get used to an idea of a nation being a certain ability. And so the Faroe Islands, obviously, as we've discussed before, back in the, the 90s, you know, when they started out into the world of UEFA football, were very much seen as a sort of whipping boy. And a lot of people just don't update that view. So you still see all these, these you know, nations coming up against Faroe's teams and saying, oh, you know, we'll thrash them. And each time they prove someone wrong, it still doesn't seem to change that view. So even after beating Ferenc Faros, for example, they came up against the Swedish side, Haken. And after the first leg, when it was nil-nil, the official Twitter of uh, Haken said something like, you know, oh, well, we'll take him back to our place for the win. <laughs> I just feel like there's a real dismissal that goes on with Klaxvik, even though everything is indicating that, that football in the Faroe Islands is, is clearly a very different beast to what it was even, you know, five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. Yeah, because last summer we had four Faroese teams winning a game in the qualifying rounds for the first time ever. And it felt like tangible progress was being made towards qualifying for the group stages. And that's what's happened now, isn't it? Clear Klaxvik are guaranteed a place in the European group stages because they've got to the Champions League third qualifying round, which means if they lose, they'll go to the Europa League playoff round. And then if they lose that, they'll go into the Conference League group stages. So whatever happens, they are guaranteed to have group stage football and they will be the seventh nation now to do that since the conference league came into being. Liechtenstein, Gibraltar, Armenia, Lithuania, Kosovo and Estonia have all had their first ever representative in the group stages since 21 to 22 and Faroe Islands are the latest on that list. Yeah and it's lovely to see it. There's clearly a degree of leveling up that's happening with certain nations. I mean the Faroe Islands we've seen them in the Nations League you know they're on the up and it's interesting now as you say we've been looking at it worst case scenario they're in the um, Conference League groups but actually they'll they'll fancy their chances going into the game against Mulder. That said Mulder in Norway I think they're on a run of four wins in a row. They're obviously a very decent side and, and they're they are not to be taken lightly, but I still wouldn't totally rule out that the, the Klaxvik can continue this incredible run. 
Yeah, so the first leg of that tie against Mulder takes place on Tuesday the 8th of August, which is in the past for our listeners, but in the future for us at the time of recording. I saw a great tweet by John Fox Pitt who said, Sweeperpod, I found a good fact. Kara Klaxvik have played Mulder in Europe before in the 2003-4 UEFA Cup. Mulder won 6-0 on aggregate. Who played for Mulder in that game? Current Klaxvik manager, Magna Hosef. That's amazing. What a great fact. I didn't actually realise that. That's brilliant. <laughs> so they got, they got some history. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't put it past them though, would you? So they've already beaten, as you said, the champions of Hungary, the champions of Sweden. If they could get past the champions of Norway. I mean, this is the question, I suppose. How far do you think they will go? What's your prediction? Do you think they could get to the Champions League group stages? Does that depend on the draws? Is it a pipe dream? It gets very hard. I mean, I actually think Mulder's a, a big test. They would be slight underdogs, I'd say, against Mulder. I think if they win that, they come up against some even heavier weights in in European terms. I think it's massively stacked against teams from getting all the way, isn't it? It's it's incredibly difficult. And it's only really just this never-say-die attitude that's kept them going this far. Like they, they look dead and buried on several occasions during this run. But I actually think it was the win against French Varoche away that was just so improbable, really, when you looked at it. That did not look like a possible thing to happen. And OK, you always have to look at, well, you know, how bad was it from French Varoche? It was very bad. I do think there's a possibility, but I do think that once they say they were to get through Mulder, I think they meet someone really, really another level up. Because, you know, you're looking at that winner of Olympia Ljubljana, Galatasaray. Like the level of team you're talking now, at that level, it really does get quite serious. But... I'd never write them off, that's for sure. I think Istanbul is the biggest city in terms of population that has any club in a UEFA competition versus Klaxvik of the Faroe Islands with 5,024 people, to be precise. So a really good matchup uh, to see. We've actually got another story from the Champions League qualifying rounds up next because on the same night as Klaxvik's history-making result, there were some other Nordic headlines, weren't there? What went on in the game between Copenhagen and Breidablik? Ah, you must be talking about Ori Stein Oskarsson, right? This was um, this was quite amazing. So, yeah, the teenage striker Oskarsson scored a hat-trick for Copenhagen in their 6-3 win against Breidablik, which is kind of amazing. What was really interesting about that was that Oskarsson is the son of Bredablik's coach, Oskar Haventor-Waldsen. So that is a first, I believe, that a player sent his, his dad's team packing. I think that's the first time that's ever happened. In the Champions League's history, certainly. I believe the game was already sort of beyond doubt by the time he started scoring. I think they were already 4-1 up, so I don't think his dad will take it too personally. I think he's quite a young guy still, isn't he? Because I saw a tweet from Nordic Footy, a really good Twitter account. You can find them at footy underscore Nordic. And he said, Ori Oskarsson was given his debut by father Oscar Torvaldsson at the age of 13. And now five years later, he scored a hat-trick. Yeah, so he's still 18. It's incredible. So, the, I mean, you look at the, the photo, he's t- he looks really young. And he's um, he's five years into, effectively, his senior playing career. So, yeah, when I saw that, I thought, wait, wait he's been playing since he was 13. So his dad basically did create the monster, that's for sure. <laughs> he's asked for that. I did actually ask on uh, Discord... I asked our patrons if they could think of any other good examples of fathers versus sons in football. And they came back with a couple of really good ones. Leipziger said, Gary Johnson managed against teams in which his son Lee was playing in. And they actually had a family trophy made called the Johnson Cup. So whenever they went up against each other, they would invite the mum of the family along to present the trophy to the winner each time, which I really like. 
Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I, mean, I have a huge amount of time for both of those. Both, as a Bristol City fan, Gary Johnson, absolute legend. Also, fairly randomly spent quite a bit of time in Latvia, which is was unusual at the time for, for an English coach. Yeah, no, love to hear that. I like the idea of the Johnson Cup for sure. <laughs> What was he doing in Latvia? He coached in Latvia for quite a while, I believe. So as a Bristol City fan, we got him. We we had Gary Johnson for a little while and he was brilliant for us. Uh, it was like a real hero. Guided us back up uh, when we've been sort of floundering. He was with us about five years, but I believe he was the Latvia national coach for like a couple of years at the end of the 1990s, I think. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that. It, now I say it, it sounds really unlikely because at the time... He had only—I mean, he was—he went from Latvia to Yeovil, I believe. So it sounds really <laughs> unlikely, but I think it was a slightly different time in football. I think he was the actual national coach. He was the guy that spotted Marianne's Pahas. Do you remember him? Yeah, I do remember him. Yeah. Oh, actually, yeah. This is how it links up with us. I think he left the job or was sacked. I don't know if he left or was sacked, but I think his last result was a one-one draw with San Marino, which which links it up with us a little bit when he was Latvian boss. <laughs> We did actually have one other really good uh, suggestion of fathers versus sons. This comes from Charlie Craven, who I think is based in Romania. He says, uh, Misea Lucescu versus Razvan Lucescu. So in 2005 to six in the UEFA Cup group stages, Misea Lucescu was the coach of Shakhtar and Razvan was the coach of Rapid Bucharest. And Razvan's Rapid won 1-0 in Donetsk thanks to an 87th minute goal. So that wasn't a father versus son manager versus player but but two coaches instead i suppose eventually you yeah you do get to possibility where they could coach against each other i wonder if that'll ever happen with uh with oscarson <laughs> then come back and coach against his dad and beat him as well but um yeah it's amazing i don't think it happens very often obviously at the really minnow level that i i tend to operate at it's not that uncommon for teams to have fathers and sons usually on the same team but I guess in like small league structures it wouldn't be that odd like you know thinking about places like St Helena or something where uh, the national team will often have four or five from the same family probably wouldn't be that weird but yeah at like professional level it's quite a it's quite a thing isn't it there were lots of other talking points from across the qualifying rounds as well so I'll just round those up now you had the conference league tie between Beitar Jerusalem and Paok where the sprinklers came on not once but twice mid-match Macedonians Scoopy forgot to take their away kits for their tie in Bulgaria against Levski Sofia. And 15 members of the Dnipro minus one staff, including eight players, fell ill with food poisoning overnight before their game against Panathinaikos in Athens. In other news, Santa Coloma became the first Andorran club to reach the third qualifying round of a European competition. Victoria Pilsen knocked out Dritter with a goal in the 23rd minute of stoppage time. And Celia of Slovenia eliminated Vitoria de Guimaraes in Portugal. So is there anything from that list or beyond, Paul, that you want to pick up on next? Well, yeah, this 20, 23rd minute of injury time. What what happened there? Because I saw, I saw the timing of the goal. Is this to do with this new way that games are being timed or something? Or like, how can a game get to 23 minutes of stoppage time? I, I've never been at a game that's had 23 minutes of stoppage time. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think this new way of stopping time was something that was introduced during the World Cup, was it not? Because that was the new feature of the Qatar World Cup where you just had oodles of stoppage time. I know you didn't watch that tournament, did you? But there was so much stoppage time all of the time. And it's not something I've really noticed watching football ever since. I believe from the sort of reactions I got from Twitter after I tweeted about that, that 
it was something to do with there were a couple of genuine like long stoppages in play and so it just went on forever but I actually did look for some live tickers this morning and couldn't find an explanation so if anybody that's listening knows why that game in Kosovo did go so deep into stoppage time, do feel free to let us know. Yeah, because what I did see was there are a couple of um, a couple of accounts. I think coincidentally, two games were picked up, which I can't remember exactly which games they were. But two accounts that that do this kind of tweeting picked up games where teams have been leading on ninety minutes and had shipped two goals to lose the game within you know 90 plus and one of them was a 90 plus 12 and 90 plus 16 or something like that that they conceded the two goals and it did make me wonder actually if this is just going to become more common if leading in the 90th minute now is going to become less relevant if more times being added on effectively at the end or whether it's just freak occurrences that happened in these games but yeah I'd, I'd love to know what would what could what could create 23 minutes uh maybe it was a horrible injury stoppage or something but I thought in the past you'd stop the clock at that, wouldn't you? But Oh, unless it's horrible injury in, in injury time. It really confused me, that one. Anything else that you spotted? I mean, Andorra was obviously a big one, and we had Hammer and Spartans winning as well. So there were a couple of really big results, weren't there? I mean, the Santa Coloma win came absolutely out of nowhere in that when you lose the first leg, if you are an Andorran team, you lose the first leg 2-0, hopes go go pretty low for the, for the second leg. So for them to turn that one round to win 3-0 was pretty heroic really uh, again a really late winner i think it was a 96 minute winner but in the context of what's going on with andorra again a nation that's being very widely seen as still a byword for a buy you know it's like oh we've got an andorra inside we're through i think people are having to revise that that view a little bit it's been really encouraging seeing their results but also seeing these results at a time that it doesn't feel necessarily like the andorran league systems in the healthiest of places so it's quite an interesting uh counterpoint there yeah, we were going to bring in, weren't we, in this episode, the fact that the, there was a real danger that there would not be enough clubs to play in the second division this season. As it is, it looks like that second division is going ahead. But certainly it doesn't look like the domestic scene is in the healthiest of conditions. I mentioned sort of at the top of this episode that there are now seven nations that have had their first representative in a European group stage since the Conference League came in. There are still a number of countries that have never had a club in the group stage. I think there's eight in total. So you have Bosnia, you have Iceland, uh, Northern Ireland, Malta, Montenegro, Wales, Andorra and San Marino. But that will change coming up because in the Europa League third qualifying round tie between Breda Blick and Zrinski Mostar, one of those will win and they will therefore be in the Europa League playoff round, which means they're guaranteed conference league. What about the other six? Just to rerun through that list, Northern Ireland, Malta, Montenegro, Wales, Andorra and San Marino. Who do you see as being the likeliest to get a club in next, either this season or, or in the coming years? I think if you'd asked me a little while ago, I might have said Wales was a good was a good bet. But it seems like Welsh football in Europe has been... Well, Welsh football generally seems to be in quite a, tr- a tricky place too. From I follow quite a lot of Welsh football um, blogs and, and passionate people about Welsh football. It seems like there's quite a lot of disappointment around how this year's campaigns have gone in Europe and the sense that perhaps Welsh football is is struggling again with the systemic problems they have there that it's very hard to keep clubs afloat for various reasons so yeah I I would have said Wales in the past San Marino let's not hold our breath I I think you know 
there were there were some signs of progress this year, but there were also some there was a seven nil drubbing or two. Like it it it's a long way for San Marino. And and actually what depresses me a bit in San Marino is it seems like one of the policies that San Marinese teams have adopted is bringing in a big hitter, like a sort of almost uh, a ringer. You know, Mykon came in. They, this year it was uh, German Denise who played it for Napoli for a while. And they seem to bring in a sort of one rogue 35-year-old who is doing it for last payday. And I just feel that's a really not a great plan. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I also hear some pretty negative stuff coming from Montenegrin football quite a lot. So I, I'd, I'd struggle to say, do, who do you think maybe would, would break that duck first? Well, I think based on the teams that are left in the competition this season there's not too much to choose from because I think Andorra Santa Coloma they've got Alkmaar next and I could not see Santa Coloma getting past Alkmaar at all and then Malta you've got Jazeera United versus Victoria Pilsen and if they get another 23 minutes of stoppage time they'll be very difficult to get the better of and then you've got Hammer and Spartans up against Ferenc Varosh now Ferenc Varosh have already been upset by a minnow once this summer they're really going to be doing absolutely everything to avoid that happening again. It's hard to foresee. Yeah, I don't think this year much is going to happen for any of those three. But you never know, do you? Like we say, I think the what the team that have consistently surprised are Jazeera United. They've been brilliant this year and they've really shown some guts and strength. But I think it's probably a step too far for them. I'd say maybe they would be my outside bet because they really... um should by rights have been out so many times and they've fought through. So you never know. Also, one last thing I'd like to mention in this segment, good luck to the fans of Derry City and Tobol Kostanai as well, who will be making, I think, the biggest journey in the next round of qualifying matches. That must be something, I haven't looked this up, but I imagine that must be something like 6,000 kilometres for a third qualifying round tie in Europe. So good luck to both sets of fans. Oh, we always love a long journey. Well, we don't love making them, but we love talking about them. I think that would do for part one. We'll be back in a second for part two to round up the rest of our football stories for this episode. But before we do, there are now close to 100 of you who are supporting us on Patreon. A massive thanks from Paul and I for that. Not only because you are the lifeblood of this podcast, but also because the European qualifying rounds have become a lot of fun to experience with you on Discord. So at the moment, each Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday, as the European qualifiers unfold, there are messages flying back and forth about who's doing well and what games you're watching. And it feels like a real community is building. So thank you very much for that. And if you want to join us and get bonus pods, entry into a surprise shirts raffle, access to pools up Pompeii sequel and more benefits besides, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash sweeperpod. Time for a break now. We'll be back before you can say KI Clapswick. Welcome back to the second segment of this edition of the Sweeper podcast. We've got a mixture of serious and silly stories coming up. Let's start with the serious, I think. As the Women's World Cup knockout stages currently take place in Australia and New Zealand, there is another national team in the host nation dreaming of being able to play in an official capacity once again. Tell us a little bit about the Afghanistan women's team at the moment, Paul. The Afghanistan women's team finds itself in a fairly unique situation in world football in that they are exiled from competing because they have a federation that, for obvious reasons, because of the the Taliban's grip over Afghanistan, not only won't support women's football, which I think sadly is is relatively common amongst quite a few of the, the FAs in the world, but is actively not recognising that they have a women's football team. So I think that's 
pretty unique and a really dreadful situation. And it's one that I think is exposing the hypocrisy and the inactivity of both FIFA and Asian Football Confederation, who are the two people that should be holding Afghanistan's FA to account at the moment. Why do you think it's a state of uh, hypocrisy? For people that don't necessarily know the ins and outs of this situation, what is it that FIFA are not living up to at the moment? So the situation at the moment is that, for example, Afghanistan's men's team has just been drawn in their World Cup qualifiers. They've, They've got Mongolia. So Afghanistan's men's team is competing as normal in FIFA football. But at the same time, their FA is specifically preventing their women's team from competing. The women's team obviously is in in exile. You know, they're refugees. They, they've had to flee the country for their own safety. So the women's football team, a large portion of them are in Australia and have been able to compete with the help of Melbourne Victory. They are a competitive squad that are still there and united as a unit and would be ready to compete in matches. You know, they're, they're not they haven't stopped, they're ready to go. But their own FA, the Afghanistan Football Federation, is preventing them from competing. Now, in in my eyes, and I'm pretty sure, in fact, I've, I've looked, and it, it in, in the eyes of the statutes of Asian Football Confederation, there are rules in there that say that no federation can discriminate against its own players, whether that's through because of sexuality, etc. But, but in this case, just quite simply because of gender. So, they are breaking their own statutes by preventing women playing football. It's not a choice that they're allowed to make as a federation in the terms of AFC's statutes. And and that also bears out into FIFA. So why it's hypocrisy, I think, is because a lot of talk, there's always a lot of talk, especially around the Women's World Cup, there's a hell of a lot of blowing their own trumpets about how inclusive FIFA is and how much, you know, women's football is being recognised as an equal and all this kind of stuff. But you here have a very clear acid test of that and you have a federation that's being allowed to say we specifically are going to stop the women playing completely and there seems to be no pushback on that it should be surely that if you're not going to adhere to the terms of AFC's federation there should be two options in my eyes one option is Afghan Football Federation therefore you have to remove your men's team from all competitions too because that would also be equal it would be a very sad way of being equal because it would also restrict opportunities there Or the other opportunity should be, okay, you don't want to run your women's team. Turn that over to someone else. Say that another organisation is allowed to therefore become the Afghanistan women's football team. And that organisation could be based in Australia with this refugee group and they could run it and be recognised by FIFA as a separate entity. But but the option they've got at the moment is, is completely abhorrent because it's basically saying okay, well, we control all football and we're saying women don't play football. And that just surely should not sit within everything that FIFA are are saying they stand for. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I'm trying to put myself in the minds of FIFA at the moment and think, like, what are they worried about? Do you think that they are currently making these decisions because they are worried about intervention into the political situation of individual countries? Like, what do you think is holding them back? I'm definitely not saying they're right in doing so. I'm trying to understand, like, why they are, why they are doing what they're doing. Yeah, it's a very good point. I suppose you're right. If you try and understand the motivation, the only logical one would be that. But then then that doesn't work either because the Football Federation isn't supposed to be influenced by the government in that way. So say a government starts to make decisions for a Football Federation, that actually is also something that a federation can be suspended for too. So if a government interferes in the elections of a Football Federation, 
then they, you know, this happens quite frequently with with uh, teams being suspended from FIFA because of exactly that. So actually, technically speaking, it should be the opposite, really, shouldn't it? It should be that they're saying the presence of the Taliban, the fact the Taliban is saying to the Football Federation, you cannot do this. That's intervention in the, uh, the Federation's affairs. But yeah, I, I would agree. I, the only thing I can think that they're thinking is we don't want to get involved in what is politics. But Honestly, when you think about how threadbare that is as an argument, it's, it's, it just doesn't hold up, does it really? In brief then, what does the future hold for the Afghan women's team? Do you foresee any way out of this situation or is this just going to be a perpetual state of limbo? Sadly, I think the, the most likely thing that could happen is that the Afghan Football Federation is suspended from FIFA. And all that that would actually do is remove the men's team from competition too, which again, denies a lot of people opportunities. I don't think that that's a, a positive move in terms of like, I don't think that'd be a nice thing to see. But sadly, I think it's what has to be done. And, and if nothing else, it would at least make the example to other federations and say, well, look, you know, we are serious about, about gender equity. You can't just remove, you, because what you see is minor versions of this all over the world where um, federations channel all their money into men's football and don't give opportunities to women's football. But this is a new line being crossed where you specifically bar the women from competing. That's that's that is different level. We talked briefly about Gibraltar and how Gibraltar withdrew their women's team from the Nations League, and at first I think cited costs. Then later on said they just weren't ready for it. And again, the implication was, and and you know from what I hear in Gibraltar, huge amounts of money are funneled into men's football in Gibraltar, and not into women's football. Now that is an imbalance, and it needs to be addressed, and it's wrong. But this seems to me like this is a worrying thing that if you just let this go with Afghanistan, then where are you, where, where, how are you really standing up for equality at all? Totally agree. Let's move across now from Afghanistan to the USA. We've got a couple of stories from the United States to tell on this episode. The first one involves a raccoon <laughs> falling through the ceiling of a press box at Real Salt Lake in an MLS Cup tie against Club Leon. I don't know if you've seen this on Twitter, Paul. I've not seen this. <laughs> I would remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so this game was postponed due to bad weather. And so I think that you had journalists who had already arrived at the stadium and were sort of waiting to see if the weather would let up a little bit and if the game could go ahead. And they were sitting in the press box when suddenly a raccoon just fell through a hole in the ceiling and then proceeded to run around a little bit and walk up and gaze into the popcorn machine, which I don't know why. That's not the key point of this story. But I was thinking, why is there a popcorn machine in the press box? You don't get that in European press boxes. That was the first thought in my head. The second one was, why the hell is there a raccoon in the stadium? <laughs> I love that that was the order that you thought in. Just, God, yeah, there really was. shouldn't be this popcorn machine. Oh, no, there really shouldn't be a raccoon. <laughs> I suppose you've got to address the root cause. <laughs> There's this shot, this video online of the... Um, of the raccoon just walking up to and it's got it's like hands up on the glass and gazing in at the popcorn and the article that i read was from sports illustrated it went on to say that the raccoon in the press box wasn't the only one in the stadium because there was one that was spotted in the stadium concourse and staff were trying to trap it in a bin <laughs> sounds like it's all going really well then <laughs> Yeah, it certainly seems eventful. So there was no game that went ahead, but there were multiple raccoons. Uh, the other story I've got from the USA, which uh, made me laugh even more this morning, uh, was about the president of Palmeiras, the Brazilian club, Leila Pereira. 
She was on holiday in New York. Did you see what, what happened here? No, no, I haven't. <laughs> so her club, Palmeiras, the fans are not particularly happy with the club's current recruitment. So they decided when they found out that their president was going on holiday to New York, that they would pay for a video advertisement on the big screen at Times Square to encourage her <laughs> to get stuck into the transfer market. So you see this video on the big screen and it's in both Portuguese and English and it just says, where are our players? Now, we don't, <laughs> we don't know if Leila Pereira saw this advert, but I'm sure she'll have heard about it and got the message. But in terms of ingenuity and inventiveness, that's, that's quite high up on the list, isn't it? It's pretty big. Although my cynical brain thought, I wonder how much money they spent on that and how much of that could have just gone to players <laughs> if they whipped around, whipped around to sign a player for the club instead. <laughs> I mean, that would be seriously expensive, wouldn't it? I mean, they're, they're a big club. I guess they've got a big following. But that would, an advert on time, it must be the, one of the most prominent advertising slots in the world. So I wonder how much money they did raise. And if it ever crossed their mind, they might want to do something else with it. Yeah, absolutely no idea. But we do love a good animal story and a good bit of... Uh football fans going going too fast. So the US massively ticked those boxes for us this week. Oh, yeah. The next story is from a place that is very close to our footballing hearts pool, Greenland. You've been there. We'll hopefully talk about it in full detail on the next episode once the 2023 Greenlandic Football Championship has taken place. But let's look ahead to it briefly because we've already got some headlines to talk about. Yeah, and they're not nice headlines. They're unfortunate headlines. So I, I want to give the credit here where it's due so this is from pat's football blog and that's at pat's fball blog on twitter if you don't follow pat already i'd strongly recommend it he is the absolute king of niche football and for years has been writing painstaking match reports and coverage on greenlandic football amongst other places and it's not easy to find information on greenlandic football a lot of google translate goes on a lot of having to message people who <laughs> probably have no idea why he's getting in touch but he does a great job and pat revealed this week that so the tournament's going to take place in the south of greenland this year in a place called I think it is. Um, all apologies, as ever, for the pronunciations of the Greenlandic places. And aside, had pulled out. So this is SAK from Sismut had pulled out. And the reason for that seems to be because a lot of the players from that team have got to be out reindeer hunting during the competition. <laughs> now, that is an unusual pullout, I think it's fair to say, for a football tournament. It's not that strange, I think, within the context, because obviously there's a limited season and... In Greenlandic culture, you know, it's still very much the thing that you, in a lot of places in Greenland, you go out, you hunt for your family and you you put the food away for the rest of the year. So I guess it was a choice between this really important sort of getting, getting the food together for the family or playing in this tournament. The choice was quite difficult. So one team withdrew for that reason. Another team, really sadly, from the east of Greenland. Now, the east of Greenland, even by Greenlandic standards, is really remote. And a club had qualified for their first tournament. So they have regional qualifiers, the Eastern Greenland team that are qualified. I will try and pronounce this, but it's... Itokotomini is as best I can do. Had qualified for, for the tournament. They pulled out because of transportation issues, because they couldn't afford to get there. And so I was thinking, well, you know, how hard can it be? It turns out they would have had to have flown from their uh, town, which I've just butchered the name of, to Tassiliak. But funnily enough, from Tisilak, they'd have had to fly to Reykjavik. And from Reykjavik, they'd have had to fly to Nasaswak. And then they'd have had to take a two-hour boat trip to get to the tournament. 
So that's a pretty unusual route, isn't it? I think it's fair to say. Um, and the costs and the sheer difficulty of that, I imagine, pretty much ended their chances. Apparently, they only would have been able to bring something like 12 players because a lot of their players also are what they refer to as catchers, which I believe means they're either hunters, fishers or trappers. So they would have been out again also. So a really unique set of circumstances here that just show exactly how unlikely and difficult Greenlandic football championships are. And as a final note, so the host team, Pat, Pat mentions this, the host team here um, are celebrating their 90th anniversary with this tournament. And while they're hearing all this news of teams pulling out and thinking, oh, this is, you know, this is so difficult, just randomly, by the sounds of it, one of the grand dugouts caught on fire uh, this week. There's just a picture of it on, which Pat shared with us on, on his Twitter, of the dugout just, it's just on fire. I mean, obviously there must be a reason for it, but it's sort of a really great metaphor for this tournament that starts, I think, on the 10th. And you've got teams pulling out and you've got them fighting all these incredible odds and suddenly in the coldest place in the world, pretty much, uh, the dugout just sets on fire. So there you go. Football in Greenland. Not not easy, I think it's fair to say. That is some incredibly bad luck. I would love to follow up on that with a few more questions, but I'm deliberately going to hold them until the next episode so that we can reflect on the tournament itself and dedicate some proper time to that. But I do have a little bit of a follow-up of my own because I looked for some other unlikely withdrawals from football tournaments in the past. And <laughs> okay, <laughs> I've got a couple of good examples. Now, there's one that's quite well known. This is India at the 1950 World Cup, uh, where the legend goes that they withdrew because they were forced to wear footwear by FIFA, whereas they wanted to play in, in bare feet. Now, the LA Times has sort of debunked this a little bit and said that, you know, it's more financial issues and, a, and an underappreciation for the World Cup and what it actually stood for at that time that was the real reason why they withdrew from the tournament but I think a lot of people generally do do think that India withdrew from that tournament due to the footwear issue yeah I do I'd, I'd always believe that so that's really interesting if that's been debunked I, I if you'd have asked me that I thought that was just a, a known fact how interesting okay uh, the other one that I found which I quite liked was a Malawi withdrew from the 2019 AFCON because they were unable to find a coach and do you know what I thought to myself if only they'd known about a highly promising young Englishman who had previously taken one of the world's worst national teams and turned their fortunes around. <laughs> That's crazy. But like, I, I, I'm guessing that must mean a coach of a certain certificate, right? I mean, it must have been, you need an AFCA licensed coach, which I sadly don't have. But that's an amazing reason to pull out. You'd have thought a job ad probably could find someone yeah I think it was something to do with the fact that they wanted an overseas coach to bring someone in with extra expertise but the economic situation at the time wouldn't allow for it I think that was sort of the the reasoning so they opted to scratch their team rather than send them out with a domestic coach that is <laughs> belief in your local coaching pool isn't it yeah, absolutely Absolutely. Finally, for this episode, we're going to talk about a big headline in the country I call home, and that is the second round of the Austrian Cup, which is coming up at the end of September. There's a big talking point. I'm not sure if you've seen this on Twitter, Paul. No, no, I don't think so. So the draw for the second round of the Cup has pitted Austria Salzburg against Red Bull Salzburg, which is just about the most loaded cup tie you could possibly have because of the history, which I'll run through briefly now. So in 2005, 
Red Bull bought Austria Salzburg. And Austria Salzburg had been one of the top clubs in Austria in the 90s. They'd won the league three times. They even got to the UEFA Cup final where they lost against Inter Milan. But they'd sort of fallen on hard times, especially financially. And Red Bull came in with an offer to buy them and did buy them. And I think initially the Austria Salzburg attitude was, well, we need investment. And I think they were sort of open to seeing where it would go. But it quickly became clear that Red Bull had no intentions whatsoever of preserving the existing club. So what they did is they changed its name to Red Bull Salzburg. They changed its colors from violet to red and white. They changed its crest and they even rejected its history, essentially saying it was a new club that was only born in 2005, which unsurprisingly prompted a lot of anger. And as a response, an attempted concession, Red Bull Salzburg offered that the goalkeeper socks could retain the old colours of violet. (laughs) Oh, that'll do it then. We're fine. (laughs) I mean, whoever works in sort of um, media relations and thinking that'll placate them. And obviously that that proved to be the final straw for a lot of these Austria Salzburg fans. So they founded a Phoenix club, called it Austria Salzburg, and they started life in the seventh tier of Austrian football. And life started pretty well for them. They got four promotions in four seasons. But ever since, they've more or less been in and around the third tier. They had one season in the second tier, but it didn't didn't work out for them. And they immediately got relegated. And so being in a different league to Red Bull Salzburg, that would have meant that the only way they could play against them would be in the cup. And for the past 18 years, the draw has always spared them, either because Austria Salzburg got knocked out really early or they simply got lucky. You know, they weren't drawn against each other, but it's happened now. The tie will be taking place at the end of September. There's already been a lot of controversy about where it will take place. It can't take place at Austria Salzburg's home because there are concerns about floodlights and safety. I don't think it's equipped for a tie of that magnitude. And it can't take place at Red Bull Salzburg's home due to, I think it's the the Austrian Football Federation statutes. For some reason, it can't be played there. Ah, you can't switch games. No. So they don't do it like in the in England where teams can switch to the bigger ground if they want to. That, that doesn't happen. Well, I've seen two reasons being mentioned in Austrian newspapers at the moment. One is that Austria Salzburg have flat out refused to play there. But I have also seen the Austrian FA's statutes being cited as a reason that the game can't take place at, at the Red Bull Arena. Um, And so they've moved it out of Salzburg now. It's going to be taking place in nearby Grodig, which is is not all that far. But um, it's a bit of a shame because this is a game, I think, that the the eyes of the world will be on. I think the media section will have... It's not often in Austrian football that you get, you know, media coming from overseas. I think there will be. And I think there'll be an incredible number of fans that will want to go to it. But because it's being played in, in Grodig, that will mean that there are some pretty stringent limits, I think, on, on who can make it. So I'm hoping I can go, but it, it remains to be seen. Oh, it's a, that sounds like one of those ones that's pretty hard to solve as well, isn't it? Because if they, you'd obviously ideally play it in Austria Salzburg's ground, they can't do that, it's not big enough. Definitely shouldn't be played at um, Red Bull's ground. That, that would be a bit of a travesty, wouldn't it? It would feel like a really bad metaphor for what's happening. So yeah, is is this stadium quite small then, the stadium in Grundig? Is it not a big stadium? No, it's not big at all. I mean, Grundig, a few years ago, they had a pretty sort of remarkable rise in Austrian football and they got promoted and then they got into the European qualifying rounds in one of their first ever seasons. So 
I think, I don't even know if they were able to play those European qualifiers at the stadium in Grudig at the time, but it's, it's a small stadium and a small club. Incredibly picturesque, by the way. It's got sort of a mountain backdrop behind it, as a lot of stadiums tend to do here. So it looks really lovely, but it just probably can't feel sort of the demand for, for tickets for that game, I think. Is there a chance of, of violence? Like, is it that kind of nastiness between the two clubs? Like, is there a is there a threat here? Is it going to be this picturesque setting to a horrible sort of crowd battle? Or is it not that kind of thing? Oh, no, the animosity is huge. And I think the way that this Phoenix club, Austria Salzburg, define themselves is being an anti-Red Bull. It's literally their raison d'etre is not Red Bull. And uh, so I think that... I think that there will be a lot of animosity. When you go to Austria Salzburg games, bearing in mind they're in the third division, it is some atmosphere, like better than some Bundesliga clubs. You have sort of flares, fireworks, fan friendships, all this sort of stuff going on in the stands. It's really quite impressive for a third tier club here by by Austrian standards. And I imagine that it is a, basically it's a nightmare for Austria Salzburg because of course, it's interesting for everybody else, but I think it's giving them logistical headaches, security headaches, all of this sort of stuff. And I think that it will be incredibly well policed. So hopefully it will go off. We want to see, you know, a spicy clash, a derby, an interesting game, but hopefully it will go off without any violence hanging over it. Yeah. And the main thing is that you get there as well. That's one of my main <laughs> factors. Yeah, I speak for everyone to say that you deserve to be there. <laughs> for all your championing you've been championing Austrian football across the world for so many years I'm happy to write your reference for this <laughs> thanks Paul I appreciate that I'm sure that the OFB will uh, will listen to me when, uh, when it comes to accreditation if I present a letter I'm sure they'll listen to my badly worded English letter <laughs> with Google translated into terrible German <laughs> from nobody <laughs> before we finish today I want to talk about one more takeover and just read out a tweet because you will perhaps have seen that the American football legend Tom Brady has become a minority owner of Birmingham City. Well, Birmingham City tweeted out a video of Brady making a motivational speech to the fans saying all the sorts of usual things, you know, I know a thing or two about winning. A team is nothing without its city. I love being the underdog. All the, the classic lines you might expect to come up in this sort of situation. And I spotted a tweet from Alfie Potts Harmer on Twitter. He's at HITC7s. He's very funny. I would recommend following him. He quote tweeted this video of Brady making a speech from Birmingham's account. And he wrote this. <laughs> if Americans are going to keep coming over here and taking over our football clubs, all I ask is that they tone down the upbeat, motivational LinkedIn style speeches. England is a miserable country full of miserable people. Please respect our culture. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that is very good. That's very Alfie as well. He's brilliant. Um, I, I've got to say, I saw another a tweet about this that does the rounds sometimes. It always makes me chuckle. Is the one of like. Um, American fans in the stadium and they're all just like chanting, you know, defense, defense. And it's like English fans in the stadium. It's like, guys, I'm going to strike us up a tune to like uh, Debussy's Claire de Lune. And it's about the like DUI of the uh, opposing coach. And it's, it's so like, that's the English, you motivate the English people. If you come in and just started to say how much he hated Aston Villa, then you get the fans on side. Don't do it with this earnest, oh, I know. I mean, he probably does know a thing or two about Birmingham, and it's probably one or two things about Birmingham that he knows. Probably thinks it's the Alabama Birmingham. <laughs> I just can't imagine a worse way of motivating people with big earnest and upbeat. Because also, if you look at Wrexham, people were very snidey about Wrexham's takeover. But those two guys, they really are, like, they're funny, they understand self-deprecation, and they came in and took the piss out of themselves. 
and it immediately won over scores of people that would have otherwise said ah, Hollywood knobs. And they immediately won them over by just say, basically saying, look how stupid we are for doing this. And people just love it. That's how you get us. That's how you win us over. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Any further business to mention on today's episode? No, I don't think there is actually. I mean, it flew by this time, didn't it? Yeah, that was a pretty comprehensive sweep of the globe. I think that will do for today's episode. But if you want to hear more from us in the meantime, sign up for our bonus pod. We'll have one coming out on Wednesday, the 16th of August. And we'll probably be talking a little bit about the European qualifiers and a select few stories we chose not to include in today's episode. So you can sign up for that at patreon.com forward slash sweeperpod. That's all for now. We'll catch you then for another regular episode on Wednesday, the 23rd of August. This has been The Sweeper, the monthly pan-European football podcast. It's recorded and produced in Vienna, Austria by TOB Sports Media and it's brought to you by FOTMOB. Special thanks go to the gentlemen creatives in Vienna for their incredible sweeper graphics. You can find their creative design agency at thegentlemancreatives.com. Oh,